Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Audrey Rinlisbacher. I'm the author of The Mission Driven Life and the founder of The Mission Driven Mom. So glad you've decided to join me today. Some super fun stuff to talk to you about in terms of moms and their um, role in morality. Please make sure and share this podcast out, subscribe, review, and join the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group for the after the show discussion. We'd love to meet you there. I want to start by talking to you about an awesome guy named Alexis de Tocqueville. You've probably heard of him. He was French. He came to America and just observed, lived here for several months and traveled all around and wrote a big fat work called Democracy in America. Uh, He talked about the positive and negative aspects of democracy, which we were putting into place in an unprecedented way. And he wanted to talk to the French about what was happening here. In fact, he starts this work uh, with this quote to his fellow Frenchman. He says, let us look to America, not in order to make a servile copy of the institutions that she has established, but to gain a clearer view of the polity that will be the best for us. Let us look there less to find examples than instruction. Let us borrow from her the principles rather than the details of her laws. That is so awesome. And in fact, you can find the word principles all throughout this work. And I'm going to read you some more selections, some of my very favorite parts from Democracy in America that apply to you and I as mothers in, in, a, in a democratic situation. He wanted the French to understand these principles. And he talks about many different aspects of American society. But he starts out by talking about the difference between the North and the South. And I'm just going to, I hope this isn't a little bit uh, too old of English for you, but I want to read directly from him what he has to say because it is so profound. Virginia received the first English colony. The immigrants took possession of it in 1607. The idea that mines of gold and silver are the sources of national wealth was at that time singularly prevalent in Europe, a fatal delusion which has done more to impoverish the European nations who adopted it and has cost more lives in America than the united influence of war and bad laws. So everybody thought there was gold and silver over here and they rushed over here to get it and he said it, was, it cost a lot of lives. The men sent to Virginia were seekers of gold, adventurers without resources and without character, whose turbulent and restless spirit endangered the infant colony and rendered its progress uncertain. Artisans and agriculturalists arrived afterwards, and although they were a more moral and orderly race of men, they were hardly in any respect above the level of the inferior classes in England. No lofty views No spiritual conception presided over the foundation of these new settlements. The colony was scarcely established when slavery was introduced. In fact, um, they came in 1607, kind of got organized for the next couple years, and by 1619, uh, they had 
of, of course, John Wolfe had put tobacco in place as the way that they were going to support themselves by that point. When the first boat arrived with 20 slaves, Sir George Yardley was a new governor in Jamestown, and he bought 15 of them. And so right from the get-go, there was a certain character of people that established the southern um, colonies, and the leadership set a certain kind of example for the colonies, as, as he talks about here, and Yardley wanted a big tobacco plantation and he got, he came here to get rich and he was going to get rich. And it was on the back of backs of slaves. At first, many of them were indentured servants and they could free themselves. But of course we know the history led to a much uh, worse establishment of slavery than that. So he says, this was the capital fact that was to exercise an immense influence on the character, the laws, the whole future of the South slavery, as I shall afterwards show dishonors labor. It introduces idleness into society and with idleness, ignorance and pride, luxury and distress. It enervates the powers of the mind and benumbs the activity of man. The influence of slavery united in the English character explains the manners and social condition of the Southern states. On this same English foundation, there developed in the North very different characteristics. Here I may be allowed to enter into some details. So he's going to contrast the North and the South, and he's already, and, and we know now all these, you know, over 200 years later, looking back, we can see very clearly what kind of people there were in the South. It doesn't mean there weren't great men, and several of our founders came from the South, and 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 were men of, of, of good character in some, in many senses, but the way that the South functioned and the principles that they were founded upon and what they valued and how uh, how the society was is and this is this is Tocqueville's point that is not what made America great. If all that had been in America was the South, we would have just become a more indolent, lazy society. And in fact, that way of life eventually was disintegrated. It could not maintain itself because it wasn't founded on. It had some good principles of representative government and and equality and freedom within a certain class. But those hugely broken principles eventually caused it to fall because its foundation wasn't strong, whereas the North set a better foundation on better principles. And this is what he has to say about that. The settlers who established themselves on the shores of New England all belonged to the more independent classes of their native country. These men possessed, in proportion to their number, a greater mass of intelligence than is to be found in any European nation of our own time. All, perhaps, without a single exception, had received a good education, and many of them were known in Europe for their talents and their acquirements. The other colonies had been founded by adventurers without families. The immigrants of New England brought with them the best elements of order and morality. They landed on the desert coast accompanied by their wives and children. But what especially distinguished them from all others was the aim of their undertaking. They had not been obliged by necessity to leave their country. The social position they abandoned was one to be regretted and their means of subsistence were certain. So they were very comfortable they were very well off in England. They had absolutely no reason to leave, especially financially. All they could look forward to was hardship. 
nor did they cross the Atlantic to improve their situation or to increase their wealth. It was a purely intellectual craving that called them from the comforts of their former homes and in facing the inevitable sufferings of exile, their object was the triumph of an idea. Persecuted by the government of the mother country and disgusted by the habits of a society which the rigor of their own principles condemned, the Puritans went forth to seek some rude and unfrequented part of the world where they could live according to their own opinions and worship God in freedom. So they (laughs) were disgusted by uh, the lack of principles and character they found in their own country, and they were determined to live better principles. In fact, a few pages later, he goes on to say, the general principles which are the groundwork of modern constitutions, and not just the American constitution, it's easy to forget that We have been a bastion for freedom all over the world and many countries have had revolutions and attempted to put better principles of democracy and constitutions in place to pattern themselves after us just because they saw what, uh, what, what great principles we were founded on. So he says, the general principles which are the groundwork of modern constitutions, principles which in the 17th century were imperfectly known in Europe and not completely triumph even in Great Britain, were all recognized and established by the laws of New England. The intervention of the people in public affairs, the free voting of taxes, the responsibility of the agents of power, personal liberty, and trial by jury were all positively established without discussion. These fruitful principles were there applied and developed to an extent such as no nation in Europe has yet ventured to attempt. Okay, so that is amazing. I mean, I don't, I hope you see how amazing that is because he's so, so spot on. It was, it was the men of the North, the families that came to the North that came for the right reasons to establish principles who had a settled aim and cause outside of self-interest who you could definitely say felt a sense of life, mission, and purpose to live out the truths that they knew to see them come to fruition. And they were willing to sacrifice so much for it, you know, so many physical comforts and so, you know, approbation and, 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 and power and position that they had in Europe. They left it all behind for something greater, for a greater good. I mean, they were willing to make so many incredible sacrifices. This is Paul Johnson. I love this quote. He says, Great events in history are determined by all kinds of factors, but the most important single one is always the quality of the people in charge. And never was this principle more convincingly demonstrated than in the struggle for American independence. Now, he's talking about, you know, 100 years later, 150 years later in the, in, in the um, you know, the War of Independence and things. But the principle, the idea that the leadership makes all the difference and that the principles that the community, that the society, that the individual is founded upon determines the long-term outcome is absolutely indisputable. I wanted to, um, this is is Christopher Lucas talking about um, American education historically uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna jump around here and read you a couple quotes about 
uh, education in the 1700s. Taken as a whole, this is Lucas, taken as a whole, the course of studies in American colleges was regarded less as an induction into various branches of learning and more as a fixed body of absolute immutable truths. He goes on to say, unshakable confidence in the efficacy of classical liberal learning leavened by personal piety and righteousness of character was reflected directly in early statements of degree requirements. Um, And this is talking about those that were founding these uh, colleges and what they wanted from from the colleges. It did, in fact... um, the, the, the purpose of these colleges uphold for more than a century and a half a received academic tradition based upon a uniform fixed regimen of liberal learning. Now, if you've listened to this podcast at all, this idea of liberal learning, classical learning comes up a lot. Um, I probably will need to just do a little series for you on the history of American education so you can have a reference point there. But it means reading original works, great works. Um, it means discussion, oral exams, the, that model that really produces the best type of learning. It took seriously its self-appointed mission to prepare a learned and pious clergy, and it did actively pursue the announced goal of raising up successive generations of political leaders committed to the common welfare. The colonial college as an institutional type thus emphasized character as much as it did learning, piety as well as erudition, and civic virtue over public advantage. Um, this is Noah Webster said that the education in America may implant in the minds of the American youth, the principles of virtue and of liberty. So, and there's, there's a bunch more quotes in here that I could go over with you. But again, this idea that they were going to raise a generation, multiple generations that were taught these immutable truths, whose education and lives were founded on true principles who were taught these governmental principles that generated liberty in society and personal liberty as well, that emphasized duty, that emphasized character and devotion to God was the total aim and focus. And, and when Tocqueville shows up a hundred years later, he sees the effects of, of that previous 200 years and what it's brought about in the nature of the people of America. So, it may seem like I've gotten a little bit off topic in terms of the title of, of this podcast, and that is that mothers are the bulwark of morality. But I have not forgotten our main aim here. I wanted to lay this foundation for you and have you think in a certain direction about how leadership is created, about what leadership means, about how important leadership is, and where leadership begins and that leaders can be taught and nurtured and that ultimately education begins in the home. That the most important leader in a young child's life is their mother. And like Paul Johnson said, um, the quality of the people in charge is always the single most important determinant of how things turn out. So here we are, we've brought children into the world. They see us as uh, all important and we are their leaders. 
we must be leaders in our homes. And that means we must be principle-centered, like this founding generation knew, if we want to perpetuate liberty, if we want people to have solid character, fulfill their duty, and be people that perpetuate freedom and are more interested in the good of society than their own personal advantage, we have to educate them a certain way and build them up to be certain kinds of leaders. So now we're gonna come full circle back to Tocqueville. And this is in book two, and he has a section where he talks about women. And I'm gonna read you some quotes about what he says about women, and you'll see what I mean in terms of the importance of the leadership that we provide in our homes and how critical it is that we are principle-centered and that we provide a moral leadership, not just in our example, but in how we teach. So these are some things that Tocqueville says. No free communities ever existed without morals. And as I observe in the as I observed in the former part of this work, morals are the work of women. I think that's something important to ponder. He's not the first or the only person to say that. Why would he say that morals are the work of women? If morals are born of a principle-centered outlook by commitment to truth and and a virtuous life, how are we as women responsible for that moral leadership, just not, in, not just in our homes, but in society. He goes on. He's talking about young women in America. He says, as they cannot prevent her, this is young women in America, as they cannot prevent her virtue from being exposed to frequent danger, they determined that she should know how best to defend it. And more reliance was placed on the free vigor of her of her, the free vigor of her will than of safeguards which have been shaken or overthrown. Instead then of inculcating mistrust of herself, they constantly seek to enhance her confidence in her own strength of character. He talks about the kind of education that these young women are given. He says, at the stage at which we are now arrived, the choice is no longer left to us. A democratic education is indispensable to protect women from the dangers with which democratic institutions and manners surround them. So what he's saying here is people in America began to see that they couldn't just shelter women and keep them at home and keep them from knowing what was going on in the real world because they had to get out there and work um, you know, in, in society and doing service work and, and raise the next generation. And they needed an education that taught them these principles. And, um, it, it, he says at one place too, that if we're going to give them the freedom to choose a husband, we have to give them an education to know how to choose the right kind of husband. He says, although the travelers who have visited North America differ on many points, they all agree in remarking that morals are far more strict there than anywhere else. It is evident that on this point, the Americans are very superior to their progenitors, the English. So it was clear to him and every other traveler that the morals in America were higher, that people were more virtuous. They were more uh, committed to doing their duty. They were more principle-centered than anywhere in Europe that they were aware of and that they had traveled. In a country in which a woman is always free to exercise her choice and where education has prepared her to choose rightly, public opinion is inexorable to her fault. So she has to be educated to know how to govern herself in a, in a free society. He says... Um, 
He says, It has often been remarked that in Europe a certain degree of contempt lurks even in the flattery which men lavish upon women. Although a European frequently affects to be the slave of women, and you kind of see that in the French mindset and in other countries where they flatter women a lot, he said, it may be seen that he never sincerely thinks her his equal. In the United States, men seldom compliment women, but they daily show how much they esteem them. They constantly display an entire confidence in the understanding of a wife and a profound respect for her freedom. They have decided that her mind is just as fitted as that of a man to discover the plain truth and her heart as firm to embrace it, and they have never sought to place her virtue any more than his under the shelter of prejudice, ignorance, or fear. So he sees this profound difference in America between the way the women are treated in America and the way they're treated in Europe. And even though there's, quote, this equality of the sexes in Europe, it's actually honored in America and women are seen as intellectual equals. And they're given the same education as men. Maybe they don't go to the university as often, but they are taught to read. They're taught to cipher. They're sent to local schools. They're, um, they're respected and they're listened to. He goes on um, to talk about, to say this. Thus then, while they are allowed the social inferiority of women to continue, they have done all they could to raise her morally and intellectually to the level of man. And in this respect, they appear to me to have excellently understood the true principle of democratic improvement. So what is, what is Tocqueville saying so far? He's saying, okay, look, there are some principles that America has been founded on. Principles, certainly economic and governmental principles, but there's also societal principles. The democratic idea of equality permeates the associations of men and women as well. The sexes are seen as equal. This is in the 1800s when he's writing this. And women are genuinely respected. And men listen to them and they honor them. I mean, you can see this in relationship of John and Abigail Adams. Um, she had a huge influence on him and he listened to her. She was incredibly well-educated and, and she wasn't, she wasn't the exception. Many women were as well. And they knew that they needed to be the leaders in their homes. They knew that they needed to raise the next generation of Americans who were going to understand liberty, who were going to be committed to civic virtue, who were going to fulfill their duty and who were going to adhere to a strict moral code. And it was working it was working because America was the most moral society in the world. More committed to God and his laws, more committed to true principles in, in every realm of life. He talks about how in other countries, they tried to make men and women equal by making them the same. But in America, they just honored each other's roles. And everybody knew what the man of the role of the man was and the role of the women. And they were both seen as equally important and as dignified. So... You know, there's, there's going to be people listening to this who are like, Audrey, you're so naive. Oh my heavens. Don't you know women couldn't even vote and on and on and on. Of course I get that. That's not the issue. We're not going to lay our current, you know, perspective and paradigm on the past. What we're going to do is look at the, look at history in its own context. And what Tocqueville is telling us is that in relationship to other countries in the world, Women had the greatest amount of real respect and true freedom of anywhere in the world. And that men chose, wanted to raise up the dignity of women and treat them with true respect and equality. And these principles that were being honored in our nation were create, were, 
were put in place by the leadership that started with those who came to the northern states, the Puritans who had ideals, who wanted to establish a society based on true principles, and they didn't do everything perfectly, and they didn't do everything right. But the intention of the heart was there. They were willing and they were submissive and they were striving to do things as they saw they were right and they weren't out for personal advantage. And because they did that, that bled into the nation that was founded and the leadership at the time of the founding that also established a country that has now just become this incredible world power, but also a nation that has had, you know, worldwide influence and impacted freedom around the world. And this morality, this commitment to principles and to truth started at home. It started with the mothers and they didn't ignore the role of women, the important critical role that mothers played in passing on these ideals passing on these goals and these duties and these morals to their children. And the mothers had to be the leaders. And so they educated them and the mothers took that duty on and passed that on to their children. They were the bulwark of morals in the society because they understood principles. I mean, the, the concepts of natural law and first principles was common conversation 200 years ago. People talked about this on a regular basis. It's all through the writings. And so women understood these things and they taught them to their children and generation after generation was moral and held to that morality. And then, of course, we could have a whole other conversation about what's happened in the 20th century. But I want to end with this. You've probably heard this quote um, in different ways from different people, but I'm going to read it directly to you from Democracy in America, what Tocqueville said about women and the morality of society and the critical role that we play. I have nowhere seen women occupying a loftier position. And if I were asked, now that I'm drawing to the close of this work, in which I have spoken of so many important things done by the Americans, to what the singular prosperity and growing strength of that people ought mainly to be attributed, I should reply, to the superiority of their women. Now, if that doesn't send a chill up your spine, <laughs> it is incredible. He wrote, I don't know, five, 600 pages. He talked about virtually every aspect of America and all the things that were influencing it, the people, the leaders, the ideas, the education, the, the, the Indians, the slaves, all of the different components. And when, he, when he's getting to the end of this work and he talks about the role of women in America, he says, if you were to ask me what makes America great, I would have to say that the single most important thing that singles them out and makes them the greatest nation in the world is the superiority of their women. That is where you and I come in as women and as mothers, bringing those natural laws back, building homes that are principle centered, becoming the bulwark of morals in a time of shifting morality. Our role is just as difficult 
as the role of past generations and in some regard may be more difficult because the information isn't as readily available. We're not taught it in the schools and it's not held in society. We have to bond together, band together as mothers to help and support each other in this morality that we are striving to perpetuate for future generations because we know that's where true happiness lies. We know that's where the strength of any individual, any family, any community, any nation comes from is submission to natural laws. That is the foundation of true morality and it's what builds strength in any endeavor. So I... I, I'm going to put in the podcast notes this, especially some of these selections from Democracy in America, some links to where you can find those so you can read some of that for yourself. But my challenge to you is to become more involved. The Mission Driven Mom movement is a great place to start because that is our mandate is to empower mothers with principles and purpose to help you discover what you're unique gifts are to help you understand how to live a principle-centered life and build a principle-centered home, and then to bring that into the communities and build up these bulwarks and build communities that are more principle-centered and eventually uphold a, a, a great nation that is falling morally quickly. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was a joy to talk to you about this um, incredible topic I love and respect Tocqueville so much and, and would suggest you spend some time with him as I have. It's really uplifting. If you don't have your copy of the Mission Driven Life ebook, it's free at themissiondrivenmom.com. Run over there and get that. And I will see you next time.